A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. Today's study is from a study we're scheduled to do in our Standing Firm Bible study class this coming Sunday, December 26, 2021. But by the time you see this, that should be in the past. And again, let me just tell you, if, if you or someone you know are not involved in a Sunday morning small group Bible study, would you please consider checking us out? Uh, if you're in the vicinity, Monroe County, we're meeting each Sunday at 10:15 a.m. in room 209 of the Family Life Center at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. And if you'd like to learn more about it, go to our website, AboundingJoy.com. Click on the Standing Firm Bible Study class at the menu at the top, and you can learn more about it. We've been looking at passages from the book of Exodus that remind us of the truth that God certainly is faithful. He always keeps his word. And today we're continuing that theme, the faithfulness of God. But we're leaving Exodus just for today. Lord willing, we should be back there next, next Sunday. We've been assigned three different passages of Scripture for today's Bible study. One of them is in Lamentations chapter 3. One of them is in Psalm chapter 51. And one of them is from Matthew chapter 2. 640 years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, there was an eight-year-old boy whose name was Josiah who became king, king of Judah. His grandfather, Manasseh, had ruled over Judah for 55 years. And Manasseh had turned out to be one of the most wicked kings to ever rule over Judah. He worshipped many idols. He practiced all kinds of things God said were abomination to him. Sorcery, divination, witchcraft. He consulted mediums and spiritists. And of course, all that's abominable sin and absolutely forbidden by God. Manasseh even set up a carved image in the temple of God. Totally disgusting and abominable. And not only that, he even practiced the abomination of child sacrifice. He sacrificed his own son to a pagan god. Well, shortly before his death, Manasseh was captured by the Assyrians and taken away from Jerusalem. And in his state of absolute misery, he actually repented of his sins and turned back to the true God. He was even allowed to go back home. But even though he had repented personally, he had for many, many years been instrumental in embedding horrific sin in Judah, in the people's hearts. And they did not change so quickly. And so God was promising judgment on Judah and Jerusalem because they were guilty of all these sins. After Manasseh's death, Josiah's dad, Ammon, that would be Manasseh's son, served as king for two years. But he was just as wicked as his father Manasseh had been for most of his reign. And Ammon's servants eventually killed him. And his son, Josiah, was declared to be king when he was only eight years old. He turned out to be a godly king. Early in his life, possibly he was influenced by godly men who either knew or knew about Josiah's great-grandfather. That would have been King Hezekiah. You may remember Hezekiah. He had died 40 years before Josiah was even born, but Hezekiah was a godly man. You may remember Hezekiah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah had a huge influence for good in the life of Hezekiah. 
Well, when Josiah reached the age of 21, that would have been 627 B.C., 13 years into his reign, God raised up another prophet named Jeremiah to prophesy and speak God's truth and to encourage Josiah to follow the Lord. In any case, Josiah did develop a heart for the Lord. And so when he was 26 years old, he ordered repairs to be made to the temple. The temple had gone into a state of terrible disrepair under the reigns of Manasseh and Ammon. And while the men were repairing the temple, they made a fabulous discovery. They found part of God's word. Turned out to be the book of Deuteronomy, at least, and maybe the entire Pentateuch. Well, Josiah had it read, and it changed everything. He said, we're going we're gonna to try to follow God here. He proceeded to follow God's commands to destroy the altars on the high places. And he followed God's commands to destroy the idols that were being worshipped all over the land. He also followed God's command to follow the, observe the Passover. He reinstituted the Passover. Look at 2 Chronicles 35, verse 24. Furthermore, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists, the household gods and idols, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. So he's cleaning up the place. But Josiah died a tragic death in 609 B.C. He was 39 years old. Here's what happened. Egypt could see the growing power of Babylon and the declining power of the Assyrians. And Pharaoh Necho in Egypt feared the Babylonians led by Nebuchadnezzar. So he decided to go up and join what was left of the Assyrian army to try to resist Babylon before it was too late. He thought eventually they're going to invade us and I'd rather resist them somewhere else. And interestingly, Pharaoh Necho, he needed to travel up through Judah and he told Josiah, look, I don't have an argument with you. Just let me pass through. The battle's going to take place far to your north. I just need to pass through to get up to the north so I can resist Babylon. But Josiah feared Assyria more than he did Babylon. You remember over a hundred years before this, Assyria had already conquered Israel, the northern kingdom. That happened during the reign of Josiah's, Josiah's great-grandfather Hezekiah. And later Assyria had surrounded Jerusalem, but had suffered a horrific defeat, if you remember this incredible account, at the hands of the angel of the Lord. It was a great miracle from God. But even now... Josiah considered the Assyrians to be a huge threat to Judah. So Josiah determined he didn't want to let Egypt join forces with Assyria. So Josiah refused Pharaoh Necho's request, disguised himself, and went out to fight against Pharaoh. It was a foolish decision. And he was shot with an arrow, and he died there in the valley of Megiddo. Jeremiah wrote great words of lamentation over Josiah's death. Even though he made a foolish decision that led to his death, he had had a really incredibly wonderful reign. And some of those words that Jeremiah used to mourn the death of Josiah are recorded in the book of Lamentations. But even though Josiah was trying to do good, there was wickedness still deeply entrenched in the hearts of many of the people of Judah and in the hearts of many of their spiritual leaders. There were exceptions like Jeremiah, but many of their spiritual leaders were very ungodly at this point. And God used Jeremiah to warn Judah, you must repent or your nation's going to be destroyed. I cannot tolerate this stuff. Well, when Josiah died, things went down quickly. Jehoahaz Shalom reigned for three months when the Egyptians on their way back to Egypt after the defeat from the Babylonians at Carchemish. Remember, they'd, they'd gone to fight the Babylonians, but the Babylonians defeated 
at Carchemish, both Assyria and Egypt, and, and they took him as prisoner down back to Egypt. So Jehoiakim became king, and he reigned from 609 to 598. He realized he's totally powerless against Nebuchadnezzar. So after the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians and the Egyptians at Carchemish, that was in 605 BC, by the way, he basically surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar and agreed to pay the Babylonians tribute. In 601, the Babylonians failed in an attempt to take Egypt. So Jehoiakim thought, hmm, maybe I ought to ally myself with Egypt again and see if I can throw off this hand of, heavy hand of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was taking a lot of their tribute. You know, he's taking a lot of money from them. So Nebuchadnezzar, when he saw Judah turning against him, just returned to Jerusalem and easily defeated him and killed him. His son, Jeconiah, also known as Jehoiakim, took over. But Nebuchadnezzar feared he might try to avenge the death of his father and be a problem, so he simply removed him and placed another man on the throne named Zedekiah. That was in 597 B.C. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar demanded heavy tribute all through this period of time, and eventually Zedekiah got tired of paying the tribute too, and once again <laughs> made a foolish decision to ally himself again with Egypt to try to resist Nebuchadnezzar because he was sick of paying tribute. And God warned Zedekiah through Jeremiah that it was foolish. Even though Zedekiah had false prophets around him telling him, you need to do it, just do it. Throw off the yoke of Babylon. And they were denouncing the true prophet Jeremiah. Now I want you to listen to what Jeremiah writes. He's pleading with the leaders of Judah and with Zedekiah, don't be a fool, don't be foolish, don't do something stupid. This is Jeremiah chapter 27. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who are saying you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they're prophesying to you with the result that you will be removed far from your land and I will drive you out and you will perish. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in like manner, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. See, God's already made the decision. He's bringing Babylon against Judah. And he's saying, you might as well do the right thing and surrender here and live. In this particular case, you don't need to keep fighting. Verse 13, why will you and your people die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken concerning any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Hear, hear him just underlining these things. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. They're prophesying falsely in my name with the result that I will drive you out and you will perish, you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. How clear can you get? Then, Jeremiah says, I spoke to the priests and to all of this people saying, thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon. For it is a lie that they're prophesying to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a desolation? Couldn't be any clearer. But of course, they didn't listen. And so in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar once again came against Jerusalem. This time, he utterly destroyed the city including Solomon's temple. And he carried thousands of Jews captive to Babylon. He had already taken thousands, but he captured Zedekiah's sons. He had them put to death in the presence of Zedekiah. And then immediately after he had Zedekiah's sons put to death, he immediately put Zedekiah's eyes out 
and took him blind to Babylon, where he eventually died in misery. And so the very last thing Zedekiah ever saw with his own eyes was his sons being put to death. But the Babylonians were kind to Jeremiah, and they allowed him to go wherever he wanted to go, and he chose to go to Mizpah with Gedaliah. Gedaliah was now the governor that was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar to be in charge of what was left of Judea, which wasn't much. But Gedaliah was quickly assassinated for cooperating with Babylon, and the man who succeeded him, Johanan, eventually decided to take a whole bunch of the Jews down to Egypt, again against Jeremiah's counsel, but he forcibly took Jeremiah down to Egypt. So Jeremiah was there to witness what he had prophesied finally come to pass. The beautiful, magnificent city of David, which King David had made the capital of Israel 400 years earlier, and the glorious temple of God that Solomon had built just a few years after David's death, all of that was totally, utterly destroyed. Jeremiah saw it all. And as he watched in horror, God inspired him to write down his heart and his emotions in a book that we call Lamentations. It's a very deeply emotional book of Hebrew poetry. So Jeremiah is essentially lamenting the destruction of the holy city. And the book opens with these words, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. She herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they've seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. And it just goes on and on like that for five chapters. We probably need to look at least a few more verses of this lament. So full of sadness, so full of sorrow. Look, O Lord, for I'm in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I've been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. From chapter 2, he says, My eyes are spent with weeping. 
My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where's bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. And from chapter 3, I become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He's sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. And from chapter 5, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. It's almost unbearably sad, isn't it? We could try. It's hard to do this kind of thing, but we could try to put ourselves in their places and imagine, what if our homeland here in America were to be totally obliterated like that? Maybe someday. Very sad, grievous awful situation, all because of their sin, because that's what God had promised. But in chapter 3, right in the middle of all the agony and the unrelenting grief being expressed over this terrible destruction that's taken place, in the midst of a time when everything seemed totally hopeless, Jeremiah, remember he's the one writing all this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, remembers that God is faithful. God has made promises which he will keep. And though God must and will deal severely with rebellion and sin, which he had done, it, that doesn't mean there's no hope. So in the middle of this painful lamentation in chapter 3, we read these amazing words. You'll recognize them. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Isn't that amazing? Such incredible hope in the midst of such incredible grief. There's a wonderful little praise song we used to sing a few decades ago. It's kind of old now. Based on these words, you remember it? If you do, you might want to sing it with me. And you may have noticed, I'm still trying to get over a cold, so this may not turn out so good. But it's not for the praise of men, right? Of course not. So join me. Let's try singing this together. 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. Isn't that a wonderful little chorus based on these verses? It's right out of God's Word. You remember it? Of course, I bet what did come to your mind is this grand old hymn, one of the greatest hymns of all. It's based on these same words. And I bet when you first saw the verse while ago, I bet this came to your mind. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Isn't that an awesome hymn? It's one of the greatest of the old hymns. I hope you're singing it with me. If you, if you didn't sing it with me, rewind this and sing it with me. I mean, it's a wonderful way to worship and praise the Lord. Awesome words right out of Scripture. The point is this, guys. Even when things look their very worst, even when everything seems to be going wrong, even when our homeland is destroyed, as was the case for these Jews, Jerusalem was in utter ruins, Jeremiah could say, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord's my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will, what? Hope. Hope in what? In who? In Him <laughs> and only Him. The psalmist said it this way, Weeping may endure for a night. But joy comes in the morning. There will come a morning. And listen, guys, there may come a time in the future when our lives seem to be in utter ruins. What seems to be meaningless chaos all around. God wants us to learn from Jeremiah that during those times it seemed most hopeless that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, to continue thinking about God's faithfulness, we turn our attention to the next passage in today's lesson from Psalm 51. This is David's prayer of confession and repentance after God sent Nathan to confront David after David's adultery with Bathsheba and, of course, the murder of her husband, Uriah. He had Uriah killed, trying to cover up his sin. But now he's repentant, and so he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So you remember David first tried to cover up his sin. That's why he had Uriah murdered. And listen, guys, thanks to our sin nature, inherited from our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam, <laughs> That's pretty much the natural response for all of us, isn't it? When we sin, we try to keep people from finding out. We lie. We try to cover it up. We try to keep it hidden. 
It's a reflex. Starts very young. Cookie jar? I have no idea how that cookie jar got broken. I don't know. Maybe it was my sister. <laughs> I have no idea how those crumbs got on my face. <laughs> the dog was licking me. Maybe he did it. <laughs> he wouldn't have left any crumbs. Would he? That's a bad excuse. <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. And as we age, we get more sophisticated at it. But we're still guilty. We learn to sound a little more persuasive sometimes. And sometimes we even redefine our sins to make them seem more normal and more acceptable. And we'll say foolish things like, well, it's just who I am. It's the way God made me. It's the way I'm wired. We're blaming it on him. <laughs> it's amazing in our day how much sexual sin and perversion gets blamed on God. Well, it's the way God made me. And But that can be true with all kinds of sin, sinful anger. Many other sins. I mean, a lot of people say, yes, I tend to get angry. I bet you've heard this. It's just the way I'm wired. It's just who I am. Besides, you're the one that makes me angry. If you wouldn't behave right, if you wouldn't behave the way you do, I wouldn't get so angry. Have you ever been on the receiving end of that kind of stuff? I mean, it can get really nasty. I have many, many times. It's painful. I had a conversation just this week with a man who went into a rant against me because I was pointing out some things that God says are sins. And he was insisting I was trying to play God by calling those things sins just because the Bible, I mean, I was just saying this is what the Bible says. He said, you don't know how to love people. That's the number one command. You're supposed to love people. But unfortunately for him, he was confused about the definition of love. And he just got so angry. There are definitely some sins, though, I think you know this, that we tend not to like to confess. We don't want to have to admit it. And sometimes it's because we just don't want to let it go. We enjoy the sin too much, and we're hoping the consequences won't be so bad. But God says the consequences are a lot worse than we want to think about. Now, he clearly tells us there's a solution, and it's a solution made possible by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross in our place. And the solution is trusting him, trusting Jesus with the accompanying confession and repentance that comes when we truly trust Jesus. You remember 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is what? What's the word? He is faithful. Yes, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at those first eight words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. And David learned this. He was experiencing brokenness and repentance, genuine repentance, and he was confessing his sin. Look down at verse 4. I know it's not part of our study today, but I want us to see these amazing words of his confession. He said, against you, God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And I can remember a time when I read that and thought, wait a minute, David, what do you mean against God and God alone you've sinned? Didn't you sin against Bathsheba? Didn't you sin against Uriah? Didn't you sin against the nation of Israel, your people? But ultimately, David's right. All our sin is ultimately against God alone. God's the one who gave the commands that we've broken. In this case, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. When we disobey those commands, our sin is against God. We've broken His law. Even though we may have done terrible, lifelong harm to other people, we may have hurt other people really, really badly, the sin itself 
is actually only against God. But God is faithful because if we will truly repent of our sins, simply repent and simply confess our sins to him, he forgives us. When David truly repented, he got to hear these wonderful words from Nathan the prophet. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You see, because Jesus would one day carry David's sin to the cross and pay for David's sin on the cross, David's sin could be forgiven. And forgiveness is a wonderful blessing based on the faithfulness of God. What an awesome thing to be able to be forgiven of our sin by trusting Jesus. But now listen to me carefully. The consequence of eternal death and destruction in hell, those consequences are really removed in Jesus. He, he, he saves us from the wrath of God. But listen, guys, while God may love us and forgive us and love us more than we can possibly imagine, the natural consequences of sin remain. The baby died. David lived through years of chaos in his family. He lived with the consequences of his sin the rest of his life. It wasn't easy. If you drive down the highway drunk and hit and kill a child, you may be really, really, really sorry, truly sorry. You may truly repent of that sin. And that means your sin will be forgiven. God is faithful. God's going to love you. But that child's not going to be brought back to life. You'll have to live with that consequence the rest of your life. That's the way sin works. God's not only faithful to forgive us our sins, he's faithful to let us experience the sad consequences of our disobedience. That's part of what comes with being free moral agents. God is faithful. Well, there's one more passage we're supposed to look at today that reminds us of God's faithfulness. It's in Matthew chapter 2, and it's the biblical account of the Magi from the east who came to Judea looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. And I'd like to offer a theory about these men. <laughs> may not be totally correct, but I think it's at least worth considering. In 539 BC, the Persian emperor Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, conquered Babylon. <laughs> they, they had thought Babylon could not be conquered, but Cyrus conquered Babylon because God was behind it and God had prophesied it through Isaiah. The prophet Daniel was an old man at that time, still alive, maybe 80 years old. We don't know exactly. But by the time of the destruction of Babylon, Daniel had risen to be the third most important man in the empire in Babylon because of his recognized wisdom and because of his miraculous ability to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams through the years and his ability to interpret supernatural handwriting on the wall at Belshazzar's feast. Remember that? And I don't think there can be any doubt that Daniel had with him copies of Isaiah and Micah and the other prophets as well as Jeremiah. We know he had Jeremiah's prophecy because it was Jeremiah's prophecy that revealed to Daniel that there would be 70 years of captivity and they were almost over. And it was from Isaiah that Daniel knew that a man named Cyrus would conquer Babylon and allow the captives to go back to Jerusalem. Well, after Cyrus had conquered Babylon, we still find Daniel in a place of high authority. I have no doubt in my mind anyway, that Daniel shared these prophecies from Isaiah and Jeremiah with the rulers and the wise men of Persia. And for the rest of Daniel's life, 
he certainly had an influence over these men. And when Daniel died, I have no doubt that he obviously had protected very carefully. They were treasures, his Isaiah scroll and his Jeremiah scroll and his own writings. And he, and he put them under the care of these Persian wise men. And he'd probably taught many of them personally. Now, Obviously, it's much, much, much later when Jesus was born. Jesus was born about 500 years after the death of Daniel. But it seems very reasonable that the Magi who visited Jesus when he was a young child, these wise men from Persia, knew about these prophecies, that there was going to be a Messiah coming because they had had the scrolls that had been passed down from Daniel and the teachings from Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. But let's read this account, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When Herod got troubled, everybody got troubled. He was a very wicked, brutal, cruel man. Verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And they quote to him from chapter 5 of the prophet Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child. When you found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Every year around Christmas time, some of the secular television channels like to broadcast programs that attempt to use their knowledge of astronomy to guess what the astronomical phenomenon was that led the Magi to Jesus. And sometimes they talk about nova, a nova or a supernova. Or they'll talk about conjunctions of planets with each other. Or maybe conjunctions of planets with bright stars. Or sometimes they'll talk about a comet. And, and sometimes they'll point out that these magi were kind of like astronomers in Persia. They understood the heavens and they would have been tuned into these kinds of astronomical events. Now, all that's probably true. I'm sure if he chose to do so, God could certainly use the stars and planets he created to send a message to these magi to announce the coming of the Messiah. He could do that. But I tend to believe that the star spoken of here in Matthew 2 was definitely not a conjunction or a supernova or a comet because of the way it behaved. Look at verse 9 again. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. You see, this star was able to guide them directly to a specific house. 
And there's no way any celestial object in space, millions and millions and millions of miles away, like a nova or a conjunction or a comet, could do that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, for example, you've seen airplanes flying a few thousand feet up in the air in our atmosphere, and compared to celestial objects like stars and planets and comets, they're pretty close to us, very close, extremely close to us. <laughs> But if that airplane were somehow to be able to stop still at that altitude, how easy do you think it would be to determine exactly which house it was over? You couldn't do it. It's just too high. No, in order for that star to lead them to a specific house, it would have had to, at that moment, be very low in altitude, low enough for them to say, no, not that house. It's over this house right here. <laughs> I think, personally, the star that guided the Magi was simply a supernatural thing. God did something supernatural, maybe kind of like what he did with the children of Israel when he led them with a pillar of fire. And of course, it wasn't a pillar of fire. It was a star, but it was similar to that. Uh, it had to be low down in the atmosphere to lead them. But I think the arrival of the Magi to worship the newborn king of Israel is another indicator of the incredible, perfect faithfulness of God. Hundreds of years before it happened, he gave his prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Micah, others, prophecies that the Messiah would come. He would be born. And partly through Daniel himself, God made sure those manuscripts of those prophecies were preserved through the centuries. And then in the fullness of time, he made sure that the Magi knew about them and knew that the time had come, and he sent them a supernatural star to guide them to Jesus. By the way, there are some people who think that the Magi themselves were of Jewish descent. Here's how they reached that conclusion. Remember, most of the descendants of the Jews who were deported to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar did not return to Jerusalem after Cyrus conquered Babylon and set them free. Of course, Daniel didn't return, but many, many others did not. Most of the Jews were doing well enough where they were that they thought, ah, it's not worth that trip back. We'll just stay here. And I, I guess it's possible, at least, that those who were descendants of the friends of Daniel may have had a lot of esteem, may have been looked to for some wisdom. I don't know. Some of them may have become magi from Persia. It's possible. But all that's just pure speculation. Because God often worked through Gentiles. He wasn't limited to working through Jews. Even in the Old Testament, we see that a lot. The main point is this. God had made promises hundreds of years earlier that a Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And listen, God is faithful. God is faithful. In the fullness of time, he kept his word, just as he always has, just as he always does, just as he always will. God is faithful. So let's thank him for that. Father, you are awesome. You're an incredible father. You're always faithful. You keep your word. You keep your promises. You say what you're going to do, and you do it. And Lord, we thank you for your incredible promises. We're embarrassed that we have so few of them memorized, but help us to memorize more and more of your promises, internalize more and more of your word, and to keep our focus on you. Because Lord, we know you've told us very clearly that sometimes in this world, we're going to go through times of tribulation. But you told us we could be of good cheer because you overcome the world. And you've told us that we don't have to get feel down and downcast and destroyed because the times are difficult. You told us you'd bring us through. You told us you'd bring us out on the other side. 
And so, Lord, uh, whether you deliver us temporarily in these bodies or whether you just deliver us through death into the wonderful time when we're going to be with you in glorified bodies, we know you will keep your word. And so we thank you that our hope is not in our circumstances, not in our bank accounts, not in our families, not in our homes, not in our retirement, not in Social Security. Our hope is in you and only you, Lord. You are our hope. So help us to keep that perspective. Thank you for teaching us so clearly these wonderful truths about your faithfulness, even in the midst of the most incredible misery we can imagine when Jerusalem had been destroyed. And even after hundreds and hundreds of years have passed and the promises still hadn't been kept, you kept them. Eventually, Jesus was born and he died on that cross for us and he conquered death for us. And now we get to be saved forever by simply trusting Jesus. Thank you. You are an awesome, awesome father. We love you. Help us to love you more and more and to trust you more and more and to never forget how faithful you are. In Jesus' name, amen.